So, welcome to the latest edition of the MPM Podcast. I'm John Burke, Managing Editor of New Project Media. And joining me today is Andrew Walranch, uh, founder of Startup Spearmint Energy out of Miami Beach, Florida. Andrew, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Andrew, your platform comes amidst the very frenzied demand for intermittent resources in the US, uh, but a supply side which is currently facing multiple challenges today, global supply chain issues, uh, the overarching growth of electric vehicles as another competitor for lithium, and uh, continued interconnection issues at some of the major ISOs in this country, which affects uh, not only storage, but obviously solar and wind uh, developers. So to start off, um, Spearman Energy is new to the game, the platform. Um, how do you intend to differentiate yourselves in the growing space? Uh, great, first, thanks for having me. Um, I think that we at Spearman come from more of a power trading background as a use case. I think that the renewable community has been very focused on utility PPAs and other state programs for the last couple of decades. And more recently with higher energy prices, oil, gas, coal, uh, and the price of power being much higher, the trading community, people like ourselves, might actually pay more than utilities for renewable energy. Um, I believe that battery energy storage is the missing piece in allowing solar and wind to participate in harmony on the grid. Uh, batteries solve the intermittency problem. They provide greater resiliency, security of the grid, and a lower carbon ancillary service offering. And all of our trading experiment is about renewable energy. Without renewable offtake, it's more expensive and more difficult to develop alternative energy. Specifically, batteries are new. I think if you go back 10 years ago, batteries uh, may have worked, but they didn't make any sense on the grid from a cost point of view. And I think that they took a lot of people by surprise in 2018, 2019, when the cost dropped so much that all of a sudden they were economic and economic in a lot of places. Uh, and so as a trader, you can provide offtake to batteries, trade for a profit, um, and also help the grid decarbonize. It's, uh, it's something we think is a great combination. Great. Um, so let's talk about owning a, uh, a behind the meter or front of the meter energy storage system. Uh, it can be a very complex process, obviously uh, less linear than solar and wind, which are you know going on standard bus bar PPA contracts. Um, whereas uh, storage systems could go into any number of contracted or non-contracted uh, revenue streams. Um, uh, places like uh, resource adequacy agreements or tolling agreements, and then uh, full-on merchant exposure. Um, as a future asset manager or asset manager today, what, what are your views on this? What what's, works, what doesn't? Yeah, so the big difference is sort of passive versus active ownership. I mean, with solar and wind, there are very few decisions you have to make, right? In a battery, you're actually changing the bid strategy and operation of that battery every minute, every five minutes of the day as the market evolves. If prices uh, unexpectedly drop to negative 20 bucks, maybe you're charging. If they spike to 500, maybe you generate. And some of that can be done with software, but a lot of it still needs to have a, a sort of a human component of operation. 
where we, we find much more of the complexity in owning and operating a battery is in long-term uh, augmentation and understanding the degradation. Every time you use the battery, you use a little bit of it up permanently, right? A lot of batteries in the lithium space, they degrade around 3% a year. And so over 10 years, that's 30% or more. Uh, and so you have to be very thoughtful about how you use the battery, how often. You have some batteries uh, in Texas that are cycling two, three times a day. You have some batteries in California that probably would like to cycle twice a day, but are unable to based on their interconnect agreements. Uh, all in all, it, it's far more active of a process. And so in some ways, it, it looks more like a thermal generator in the way that you are constantly um, changing your bid strategy. I think the difference is instead of having fuel or coal on site or a gas supply, you can buy to, to charge uh, pretty much anytime you'd like and then discharge. So it, it's a very different uh, prospect. Uh, great. Are there any uh, markets that are more favorable than others today in terms of uh, operating uh, energy storage systems? Sure. I'll, I'll separate between operating and development. Operating sure. today in California and in ERCOT can be quite lucrative. Uh, both grids have significant amount of intermittent resources. And when the wind doesn't blow or the sun doesn't shine, or more specifically at sunset, where you get what's called the, the sort of the neck of the duck curve, uh, batteries can be a wonderful way to, to trade in the marketplace. And so those two markets are probably the easiest to play. I think PJM had a couple of programs over the last decade that have had mixed success. Um, I think that Massachusetts today with its new Clean Peak program hasn't fully been built out, but I think that's a great place to be. But I think on the development side, anywhere where you have a significant amount of intermittent wind and solar, which clearly includes MISO, SPP, and I really think all up and down the East Coast, if you are a true believer in offshore wind, all of those are places you want to be. Really, any place where you have intermittent resources, you need batteries. And I think that the states uh, and the ISOs are really understanding that they go hand in hand and that batteries are, are sort of late to the game. Uh, but we'll, we'll be able to catch everyone up pretty soon. Great. So um, let's talk about merchant storage. Um, you know, there are projects that are obviously currently being developed with the merchant view. Um, and it seems like uh, you, you talk to people that finance these projects, you'll get a different amount of opinions about whether the bank market's comfortable or not uh, financing merchant exposure and also uh, the, the easy, easy uh, pull to bring in standalone storage ITC into the conversation as oh. You bring that in, everything gets accelerated. Um, you're going to see more of it. Uh, but meanwhile, of course, um, you're seeing it in the development and um, acquisition side, and others are just developing these projects anyway. They're not sitting around waiting for a standalone ITC tax credit to pass. Um, melding a lot of thoughts there, but um, where do you see the financing market right now when it, with regards to merchant storage? What do you think the impacts will be of a standalone storage ITC tax credit? And do we necessarily need it today to accelerate building standalone storage? That's a lot of questions in one. Uh, I'll, I'll, start, I'll, start with, <laughs> I'll start with the merchant topic. Okay. Um, 
you know, at the financing level, there's an enormous amount and, and the equity level, there's an enormous amount of capital in from Canada, the US, Europe, the UK, that really wants to invest in all types of renewable assets. Given the difficulties uh, in the solar import space, a lot of dollars that would have gone into the solar now are being repurposed what it can invest in today, which is batteries. And so you have quite a number of lenders, uh, by some estimates, 80 to 100 lenders globally that are willing to invest in U.S. battery storage. Now, they range from people wanting to do full merchant to people who need full contraction. Um, and given that just the, the sheer number of people who have carved out a little bit of their portfolio to invest in batteries, it's, it makes sense you're going to have a huge range. We did see recently a standalone storage asset in Texas with full merchant financing. I think that the interest rate rate was pretty low, which is good for us. I thought that was attractive. I think that the leverage, uh, I believe it was somewhere like a 50-50 debt to equity split. Given merchant and it's new, I think that also makes sense. Uh, when I first started doing this a few years ago, we went to some lenders with a told battery and they were looking for, um, you know, very, very high rates of return. Two years later, uh, I think I'm shocked at how quick the market's been willing to sort of adapt to a new technology. But you really haven't had a lot of total batteries built. I mean, we have about six gigs of storage in the U.S., quite a large queue but not a lot in the market necessarily for financing today. Uh, and I, I, I'll tell you, a, a huge percentage of our job as a developer is actually educating the lenders. And I, I would say I, I probably spend at least two to three phone calls a week with lenders or investors with a lot of exposure to renewables in general, walking them through merchant energy storage, partially contracted or even fully contracted because it's new to them. Right. We see some of the largest banks in, in the U.S. and the world want to be in the space, but and they want to dip a toe in. Um, but for them, dipping a toe might mean one hundred million dollars. And there's not a lot of assets out there that can support that. So you have a you have a lot of people, a lot of people looking at the space and kicking the tires right now because they want to learn. Right. I think that if the tariffs were dropped and all of a sudden there was a huge uh, appetite in solar land for debt, I think it would make it more difficult for storage for sure. But while the tariffs are in place, uh, batteries get the benefit of that. Now, with respect to the ITC, that's a tricky one. Um, in some places right now, the ITC is not necessary. Places like California, batteries make a lot of sense without it. But there's probably 45 states that won't see battery energy storage today without an ITC. Now, you have lots of renewable portfolio standards all across the country. As you get more and more solar and wind in those other states, it will necessitate uh, and reward storage, right? But I, I think that what's going to happen is you're going to jointly have state by state, ISO by ISO programs whether it's specific subsidies, tax credits at the local level, but probably on the ISO side, some sort of revenue stacking. And revenue stacking is where you allow a battery to actually have five, six, seven different revenues. I think Massachusetts put out a great piece that if you build a battery, there's actually eight different uh, revenues or cost-saving line items for the battery. 
which uh, is the best definition of, of revenue stacking I can show. So today, the ITC would help probably get batteries deployed around 20 more states, right? And so it really, it, you know, there's a cost and a revenue side to everything. Uh, the ITC essentially reduces the cost, but you have another problem on that side that how much tax equity appetite is there? If you get a direct pay, there's a whole litany of problems with direct pay. And if, if all of a sudden someone snapped their fingers and tomorrow there was an ITC, you would have an issue with getting all the tax equity lined up, closing all the deals. Uh, it would be quite a race. I think direct pay, I've talked to a lot of other developers, they're gonna look to direct pay because it's quicker uh, for them personally, it's easier, less lawyers, less hoops to jump through, uh, even though they would make a little bit extra money going with the proper tax equity investor. And that also includes monetization of the bonus depreciation, which people don't talk about very much, but is a really key component of what's out there. Right. I think there's other things that governments can do to incentivize battery energy storage that might be less politically charged. Right now, there's still a reasonably high import tariff on importing batteries from China. Yes, it's lower than it was last year or two years ago, but it's higher than it was five years ago. And so that's a place where uh, if the government was really serious about battery energy storage, they could reduce that tariff and have a real meaningful impact on projects tomorrow. Uh, thank you for that uh, multi-part answer. I appreciate that. Um, but you rang a, an interesting point about the cost of projects today. Um, could you give us sort of your uh, view on, on where the costs are currently and, um, you know, are there trends coming up, which might help decrease the costs or is it going to be more of the same in, in the next, like, let's, let's say 12 to 24 months? You know, there's a variety of opinions about this, but I would say that over the next three years, you're unlikely to see cost drop significantly. Um, the lithium market, or at least the, some of the, the foreign exchanges, are very thinly traded. They're uh, almost impossible to hedge. I think some of the U.S. automakers are actually taking on an enormous amount of lithium market risk um, with no ability to hedge it at all. On the battery energy storage side, maybe because we come from more of a trading background, we're frustrated that battery suppliers want to price their batteries off of a lithium index that we can't trade. So I think that the demand, both from EVs and from stationary storage, is robust. It will continue to be robust for a very long time. And as a result, it will take up a lot of the unused uh, capacity. I know there was articles in the last couple of days about some European gigafactories maybe rethinking their positions. From where we see, I believe there's over 30 gigafactories under construction globally, some of which have capacity as high as 30 gigs from one facility, wow. which is enormous. I think that people have jumped on the train of lithium, and that is why you have so many facilities. Um, and so even if the margins get razor thin in the manufacturing process, because the underlying lithium and all the other metals that go in, and there's a lot of metals that go into it, is so high, there is a floor for how low batteries can, can go. So today, uh, I think over the next two, three, four years, the price will remain rather robust, um, which is unfortunate. 
I, I do see that the market today is all over the place because you have some firms that have that had lithium supply contracts that gave them sort of a, a leg up. You also see a lot of the very large top tier players literally paying spot price for their lithium and just acting as an intermediary. Um, the biggest problem I would say with this is any any contractor PPA or, or really RFP process run by a utility does not include this kind of price flexibility in their RFP. And so if you choose any, any random utility and they issue an RFP, that process might take six months to get to fruition. During that price, during that time, the price of lithium is all over the place. And so I think that the utility purchasers and RFP writers are going to have to try and rethink how they... Uh, they do this. I mean, when you go to buy a combined cycle and you put an RFP out, you, you kind of know the price of the of the combined cycle. Right. In batteries, it's really tough. So trying to issue an RFP and then waiting six months to award it, I think that's going to have to change. What do you think possible solutions are to that? Including pricing mechanisms in the RFP to reflect the, the market price. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to go back to cost plus methodology, but you could, you could find some sort of cost plus or index plus methodology. Um, I think that the real solution here, the utilities are going to have a hard time with that price flexibility. Those going to take merchant risk with the merchant appetite. I mean, they're not going to care as much. Players like us um, who are willing to be flexible. And provide offtake to our own assets, we're the ones who will be most flexible. Right. And so I think it really shows the need for merchant energy traders in the renewable space, uh, which is sort of the reason Spearman's here. Got it. Yeah, there have been, um, you know, uh, we've seen a, a bunch of um, storage projects and platforms hit the market, let's say in the last half, in the, in the first half of the year, sorry, it's July 6th, not second half. Uh, and that, that's been a point that's been raised. And it's like, you can see the other side of the rainbow and solar and winds, you know, that, um, you know, about the contracted revenues and you can forecast revenues and it's an easier math to put together, but you're trying to put together the, the math for an acquisition for, a portfolio or a platform for battery storage where all these things could come into play, right? Merchant contracted, partially contracted. And it seems like uh, not an easy exercise, you know, all in based on everything we've talked about today. I think solar does have its risk now with gas prices at such yes. high levels, yeah. $5 gas. Um, you know, by the time you, you get to signing an actual PPA, uh, uh, I don't know if the price of gas could be $3 or $13. Right, right. It's 480 in New Jersey today, Andrew, around the corner for me. Uh, very happy about that. Um, so just getting into energy transition um, and uh, electric vehicles and sort of the, um, you know, rotating worlds, I guess, if you will, about uh, EV pluggers and energy storage and how... You know, they're, they're in some ways serving similar functions as um, energy storage systems might be. 
what what's your view on that world right now? It, it seems like we hearing that it's still very preliminary for EV charging networks, and they're they're being built, but you know it's fragmented. You know at this point, and to to look at them as a legitimate alternative to ESS or or BESS is still a little bit early. But um, just really wanted to get your view on this. Yeah, so I actually think that they're both part of the energy transition. They both have a place in reducing carbon. Uh, I almost like it to uh, water purification. Like, you know, you need, you need some in your home, but you also need giant places out, you know, doing it on an industrial and commercial scale as well. In reality, the software is not perfectly up to par yet. But people like Tesla, clearly, as they've announced recently, uh, are going to try and, you know, band together fleets of vehicles and provide grid services. I think that's a big part of the future. I think there's a lot of American car manufacturers who are slow to realize that they have a place in the U.S. electricity sector. And that when they realize it, um, there's actually a lot of stakeholders that have yet to realize their full capabilities in playing in the renewable power sector, right? So I, I think that the autos, um, I think that other electronics from forklifts to semis to all sorts of things, when the software evolves, we will uh, we'll be able to incorporate them into the fix. Right now, one of the biggest problems with DG as a concept is the telemetry uh, you still have, you know, overall systems where the batteries are responding so fast, right? Faster than generators. And so the utilities have a hard time sort of keeping up with large distributed networks, and that'll improve over time. So I, I, I have, I'm very optimistic overall in the ability for both local DG batteries, uh, which we're building, by the way, in cities and very large ESS facilities in the desert. Uh, I think there's room for both of it. I, I do think the car companies will one day wake up and realize that they, they may have more opportunity than they realize. Got it. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, so uh, getting into sort of alternatives, because, um, you know, we're obviously seeing, uh, to your point about California, embracing longer duration uh, batteries pretty quickly. Uh, as part of, um, you know, we, with utilities or CCAs, they're all sort of procuring uh, for short and long duration. And then looking at alternative um, to lithium, which um, there's a zinc-based uh, ESS developer today, EOS Energy Enterprises, um, announcing this uh, pretty large deal uh, to supply Bridgelink commodities and um, um, a, a Northeast developer, which they didn't identify. And then Intervenue with their metals hydrogen um, going to Pinegate and uh, you know and Puerto Rico I think was the other other client they signed up so they're starting to get bigger um, although you know we keep hearing from the market that um, lithium continues to be very widely accepted you know ninety percent and higher in terms of what's integrated into ESS but. Uh, what's your view about some of these alternatives and how they're advancing and, and uh, where they need to go? I mean, uh, when I first started uh, in the space, I talked to some battery consultants who, who started off their presentation by saying, you know, uh, 
the streets are littered with battery technologies that worked in the lab and failed to commercialization. That was one of my first meetings I ever had with a battery technology consultant. Um, I think the easiest way to illustrate your point is that I think that the number one VC startup, uh, the VC fundraising sector in Q, Q1 was battery technology. Wow. I mean, the VC space has funded over 50 startups, right? Um, whether it's anode or cathode or, or other technologies, I don't know who the winners are going to be, right? I kind of feel like we're at the turn of the 20th century and there's a thousand people with new patents, all who have reasonably good ideas. And each one of them may be able to succeed on their own, but in competition against the 50 others that are doing something similar, I don't know who's going to win solid state or flow or whatever. When it comes to EOS and zinc, um, I like the safety factor quite a lot. And I like the sort of lower operating costs over time. I think it's still new and they've had manufacturing issues in the past, which I think they've rectified. But I do think that there is promise for those places where a five, six hour battery makes sense. So I'm optimistic that it'll work. When it comes to flow batteries, um, some of the other technologies out there, gravity-based and such, they are low efficiency, right? And so it makes sense in some ways and not in other ways, especially when you have high energy prices, the low efficiency can really be, be tricky, right? Um, I think that when it comes to actually getting these things in the ground, you need the, the lenders to finance them. And so one, you have to get the lenders comfortable with the technology, which does not happen easily at all. And so you're going to need insurance companies to provide guarantees. They're also not easily swayed. And so you have to have a bank willing to finance the transaction. And then you have to have a client willing to not only install it, but use it, right? At the end of the day, the developers aren't using the batteries. They're selling them. And so the end user has to say, hi, I'm comfortable with flow technology or zinc technology or, and not only am I comfortable with it, but I'm willing to live with it for 20 years and to trade around it, to dispatch it. Uh, as we've seen in the fuel cell world, I mean, there's a lot of projects out there that just didn't work, right? And so you need, you need sort of bold financers and, and people to take technology risk but then you also need people like Spearmint who are willing to take battery offtake, right? At the end of the day, the battery offtake is the missing piece in all of these things. So in moving to new technologies, yeah, the, the cooperatives in California are, might be willing to take technology risk on an eight-hour battery. But I will note that in their most recent awards, they selected lithium. And so if California, a tech hub, a startup hub, someone who you think might be willing to take a big risk on technology, if they weren't willing to do that, then other people probably uh, won't be first in line either. Interesting comments. Well, Andrew, that's about all the time we have, uh, but thank you for joining the program today. And uh, please uh, tune in next time. Uh, Burke out. Thanks for having me.